I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran, and this is Radio vs. the Martians. I had something on the cutting room floor for Keanu that I think this panel of experts, joined now by Tobias Panchin, who is our gracious host with his equipment so we can be recording here. Uh, thank you for joining us, Tobias. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. We didn't, I didn't get a chance to talk about 2006's Constantine, where Keanu Reeves plays a poor adaptation of a beloved comic book character in uh, a movie that was largely overlooked and uh here's my here's my thought we were talking a lot about it but i was thinking is it the fourth generation of superhero superhero movies that we're on would you say it's the fourth generation Mm -hmm. or fourth Mm -hmm. it starts with iron man it's traditionally says it starts with iron um, man right there's kind of there's everything that's pre-batman 89 it almost gets thrown into that one because i think superman is almost an island unto itself so i don't know if that's a generation but superman with christopher reeve was sort of that first time they said this is worth spending money on Mm -hmm. and then batman 89 started the everything looks like tim burtony everything sounds like danny elfman rubber muscle suits um it sort of transitioned into sort of the the leather jacket sort of thing that you had with blade so that was kind of blade was sort of that transitional form between um, the next generation, which was sort of the Spider-Man, X-Men generation. And then you could say Iron Man started the most recent one, okay. which is the shared universe one. I would say that Blade and X-Men are definitely of a generation. Like, that, that's kind of like the precursor of the form, if you will. Yeah, like X-Men still, everyone dressed in black, but and they still kind of had a little bit of a muscle suit, but they were still acting a lot more like the Spider-Man generation because mm-hmm. it still had some of the leftover bits so, so here was the point that I was going to make vis-a-vis Constantine, tying this all together, is they you traditionally say that the current sort of huge superhero blockbuster sort of starts with Iron Man because that's the beginning of the MCU. What about, consider this, Constantine might have been the precursor to this. They started the DC cinematic universe starting with Constantine. Because he is, isn't he? He's a DC universe character. Yeah, and yeah. I want to... I just correct you on one point. You're talking about the best John Constantine movie that's ever been made. (laughs) (laughs) Without question. I think I, I, it's it's an interesting point because I don't view Constantine as a DC character. I view him as a Vertigo character. And I think see our Vertigo panel. If you watch him, if you watch the movie though, you see DC comics as the producer. Oh no, absolutely. Because that was, I mean, Vertigo was the, you know, the, the, the critical brand, right? The it's literary the, branch of DC the, Comics. It's a corporation that owns the character. Yeah, exactly. But Constantine, and I think we this was a very big issue of cont- uh, bone of contention for me when Constantine occupies this really interesting space because I think one of the things they did with the New 52 is they brought him into the mainstream DC universe, and he is a character that functionally breaks that universe, because he is not a superhero. Mm-hmm. I think the key, I, I watched the Constantine movie as a fan of John Constantine. And I was pleasantly surprised, probably because they did not try to ape that Constantine. They didn't dye his hair. They didn't give him an accent. They wrote a story around this character that was 
kind of what it was. And because they did not try to kind of steal very heavily from the comics, I've, I really enjoy that adaptation, even though if you're a diehard Constantine fan and you're looking for a lot of the things that are kind of prone from the comic, you're not going to find them, right? Like, I think they played him well as this kind of bastard character that cares only about himself and that because he can't be close to people because he deals with fucked up things and he deals with fucked up circumstances and those things just have... He is really good at surviving. The people around him are not. Hmm. I think I would have enjoyed that movie a lot more if it wasn't called Constantine. That's what I was thinking. absolutely agree with that and I say that as coming in as somebody who has never read a John Constantine comic book from start to finish, mm-hmm. who knows practically nothing about the character except that he's a son of a bitch wizard, I thought that movie was fine. Yeah. I don't understand why anybody wouldn't like it other than you were expecting it to be something other than what it was. I, I have the baggage, admittedly, of knowing the source material. And when they do something that adapts that source material, I see what they're doing and I immediately have a point of comparison. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And if I was ignorant to that, I think I'd I'd really like it because I think the thing that, that he nails, and this is a thing that a, what for me makes a good Constantine story, is that John Constantine is a fucking bastard. Mm-hmm. That in a lot of ways he's a dirtbag version of Doctor Who. That Yeah. <laughs> that, that, yes. That Doctor Who is not a character that wins a fight the same way that like Han Solo or, you know, John you know. John Matrix from Commando does. He's not winning because he's just the best fighter. He's not Batman. He's not even the greatest wizard. He's a bullshitter. He's a talker. He's somebody who uses a clever trick to win. He, he is coming out of the archetype of the gentleman adventurer. Yeah, there's, a, there's an element of him as being this guy who wins not because he's more powerful. He's frequently battling and besting people that are far more physically and magically a lot more powerful that his magic is actually pretty limited. He's not like a Harry Potter wizard. He's somebody who knows rituals and binding spells for demons. And he usually uses their own... It's kind of like a a magic version of Judo with a lot of his own con man tricks. Yeah, the the doctor's main... Like, the biggest thing in his repertoire is, I'm going to go get captured and let them tell me everything about them. Yeah, it's a clever trick. It's not a gunfight that he wins with. And and Constantine is the same as the Doctor in that regard. And I think that if you nail that part of it where he is genuinely clever, but his cleverness also comes as a cost to other people, that he comes out unscathed and he defeats this horrible, unspeakable evil, but it's the people around him that are the casualties of it, that he's haunted by it, but also has this little element of, fuck you, you shouldn't have gotten so close to it. Well, and I also think there's an element of self protection there where he's like he can't allow himself to get caught up in that because I think John Constantine's real strength is he knows the rules and because he knows the rules really really well he knows exactly how to break them he knows exactly how to get other people to not right and so a lot of times you get find him getting at, into these situations and he gets out of going like hey listen this guy owes me a favor don't you want this instead of this because he knows he just he's really good at playing that sp- specific game 
unfortunately, he's not very good at being a human being. Oh, no. And so I, I like the comparison between him and the doctor because I think the doctor is similar, right? Like he understands how to – he understands the way very specific things work and that gives him insight in how to get around things a lot of the time. Yeah, and the doctor also cares about the casualties and works really hard and frequently doesn't make a Constantine decision mm-hmm. to save the day. Where if Constantine knows that he has to throw somebody into a volcano – to appease some evil god and save this village of people, he's going to chuck that person into a volcano. And usually it'll end with everybody hating him, but they're fucking alive to hate him. And he walks away pissed about it. But the the other thing, I think this is something that Keanu kind of nailed, is that that Constantine is ultimately doomed. Mm -hmm. That he's a guy that has done too much shit and pissed off too many people. And his clever, you know, bullshit tactics are against immortal evil beings who bear grudges against him. And he knows he's damned. He knows that he's damned and he's fucked and there's not a lot he can do about it. But it's kind of that Captain Kirk thing of I don't believe in the no-win solution. He just keeps kicking that damnation down the road and cleverly escaping it knowing that Ultimately, he's going to die, and ultimately, those people are going to get him. Well, that's that's what makes the ending of that movie so strong, that he oh, actually does yeah. manage to find salvation, not to go to heaven, but to force the devil to save his life, yeah. to give him another chance to damn himself again. Yeah. yeah, And that is a really cool move for a movie like this. Oh, yeah. yeah, I think it's a brilliant ending. And the little bit that they sort of capture them at one point where he looks like he is dead and he's going to get to go to heaven, he's sort of ascending to the angels, and he's passing by Satan, and he just kind of turns around slowly and gives him the finger? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's like, that's, and that's why I think... I think I'm okay with that movie because the heart is there. Yeah. Right? It's not like something like, once again, and it's it's only because I think it's so egregious, but Batman versus Superman, which guts those characters of anything other than the external kind of accoutrement of what they are, and then tries to tell a story about well, them. Constantine is a story about John Constantine. Well, because I know we beat the drum on this over and over, but Zack Snyder is a guy who's all about external accoutrement. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. That's, that he's all about this thing looking cool and missing the internal thing. I think sometimes you can do an adaptation that changes a lot of that. I said in the episode with the Dracula movie that it probably would have been better if they'd made Jonathan Harker an American. And that's exactly what they did with John Constantine. That that would have been a distraction if he'd been faking that accent the whole time. Oh, God, no. It would have been awful. And he would have looked awful with blonde hair. Yeah. And you don't have to make him look exactly, but if there's one thing Keanu can do really well in a movie, it's kick ass while wearing like a suit with a skinny tie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then he yeah. can pull that shit off. And I like the idea of in the chain smoking, the bitterness, the like, you know, the sense of just like, oh, I'm fucked. And, see, and the guy who's, who's haunted because he's seen some horrible shit and done some horrible shit to avoid that other previous horrible shit. Yeah. When, and I think, I think it just Keanu playing him gives him a credence because you're so used to him kind of not being that character that it's that genuineness, right? It's that sincerity where you're just kind of like, yeah, I totally buy this. Because I'm not doing more than I have to. I'm keeping. It's very simple. It's very. It's and it's it's very understated. And I think it works really well in that role, which is weird because I'm the last person that should love that movie. Because when it came out, I was still a purist in a lot of ways. I've mellowed a lot as I've gotten older. But when that movie came out, I was like, you know, I was the kind of person that was like, after Jurassic Park, I swore off adaptations of books I had read. Because I was young and I was an idiot and I I didn't realize how great Jurassic Park is as a movie. And I didn't realize I had to let that be its own thing. Yeah. The the hardest part of that movie for me 
was the fact that the buddy who who drives the cab owned the same hat that I did at the time, <laughs> oh. and that was incredibly you mean distracting. Shia LaBeouf? You mean Shia LaBeouf? Was that yes. Shia LaBeouf? Yes, it was. Oh, my God. I, like, did, I don't yeah. even remember that part. No, I just remember he had my hat, and I was like... No, that's my hat. Stop it. <laughs> you do, you don't get to have my hat, Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> oh. You don't deserve my hat, Shia LaBeouf. That's how I feel about Full House. DJ Tanner had the same bed sheets as me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so if I can, to springboard kind of into something that I'm really interested to talk about. Hold on Fuller one second. House? I have to just say for the record, fuck you, Candace Cameron. <laughs> you deserve nothing good. Fuck that, um, fuck that whole family. Yes. <laughs> I, I've got nothing against Bob Saget. Oh. Well, I don't admit her real no. family. No, Kirk, Kirk Cameron. Uncle oh, yeah, Jesse, yeah, yeah. Uncle Jesse. Oh, excuse me, yes. Yeah, the Kirk. entire Cameron clan. Yeah. Oh, agreed. <laughs> I, don't have agreed. A, I don't have a beef with John Stamos, though. For all the people that I kind of go like, eh, with a lot of the people on that show, John Stamos gets a pass, and I don't know why. He just, yeah. So I got no handsome, he's John Stamos. Yeah. What, was, what was that? He's so damn handsome. Yeah, he is. It really it's, is. It's like I like John Stamos. It's like everyone else. Like, yeah. yeah. John Stamos seems like You guys like ever a cool see dude. his first movie? Like one of his early movies? The one with um, what's his ass from Kiss in it? Gene Simmons? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, Gene Simmons and John Stamos. What? Oh, God. oh please tell me they're cops. Oh. You guys don't know this film, do you? No. I'm looking up the name of it right now. So Gene Simmons has like a nuclear bomb and John Stamos has to stop him. By the way, Gene Simmons is in drag the entire movie. Oh, Dr. my God. Okay. Is it, is I have that, to find the name for this. If looks could kill. That's Is that Richard Grieco? That's Grieco. That, okay. All right. Never too young to die. Lance Stargrove. Oh, dang. <laughs> Never too uh, oh, so you you were going to say something, Joe? Oh, well, I was going to transition mm. from how I think Keanu really sells Constantine to <laughs> my prom. So Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets came out, mm-hmm. and the the reviews came out, and I was like, I'm not so sure I want to see this anymore. And then the we our local theater has five dollar movie nights on Tuesdays. It's worth it, and it is absolutely. And so a a big group of Kirby's co-workers were going and she was like you should go and I was like okay I'm gonna go because it's five dollars and the movie is visually stunning like it was totally worth five dollars to see how beautiful it is and it's Luc Besson so of course it's gonna be visually stunning unfortunately the male lead I realized as I was leaving the theater the biggest problem with him is that he is like he's not entirely dissimilar to Keanu Reeves Except that he's not nearly as good looking. He doesn't have any of the sincerity and he doesn't have any of the charm. And I was like, it was like a dark reflection of Keanu Reeves. I was like, holy, what if this was what Keanu Reeves was like? He wouldn't have had it like all his movies would be like instead of joyful, they would have been awful. You mean Dane DeHaan, where we're Dane talking about Dane DeHaan, him. yeah. He's like just, a human air guitar, that guy. Yeah, he just, <laughs> really shows what a fine line he ran. Yeah. <laughs> but where, first of all, where do I know him from? I have he no, was in Lincoln. Uh, I don't know what the hell else he's been in. He looks like somebody uh, that I should recognize from another movie that I can't tell you. He looks like everybody. Yeah. He does look like yeah. He acts like everybody, too. Because like, <laughs> I can sort of lay out how I feel about Valerian. I think, again, visually stunning is the word that you're going to repeat over and over in any conversation about this movie. I think it's not just that there's awesome CGI in it, but I think they marry that CGI to incredible sets and costumes. Oh. 
There's a number of set pieces in the movie, especially Big Market, which I fucking love, and I love that tour guide. Yes. And the fat fat tourists that are going through this thing, buying cheap crap and trinkets. That sort of stuff is great. Um, I love the setting of it. I love the first three minutes of this movie with David Bowie. The intro intro piece, which, uh, I mean, I don't know if we should... should, Actually, this is one thing that I think we shouldn't spoil. The intro, which is basically a montage showing the humanity going from being just on this planet to eventually becoming part of a huge conglomerate of with aliens in the in the galaxy is so well done it absolutely amazingly well done valerian is like it's like a box of valentine's chocolates and you eat the first three or four and you're getting like caramel and like nougat and it's good and then you just hit a certain point all the rest of the truffles were like toothpaste flavor yeah (laughs) they were beautiful to look at and there was a beautiful packaging but unfortunately just it was just missing. Even though there's just, this, this handful of really good ideas and visuals that are just jaw-dropping, but then you have two leads that are so rote. I mean, I'm so used to... I mean, everything that comes out of their mouth is that like them explaining their current state of their character arc with mm. each other and plot, and it's like, stop talking. And I don't know, I've, I've heard somewhere that Luc Besson writes his scripts in French and then translates them. Maybe this needed to be a movie that was in French and subtitled. Maybe this movie just needed to be translated with something other than Google Translate because it sounds like it. I think, but you see, and I, I thought that too. But I think really, I think a better male lead would have just saved it. A yeah, better, they, yeah. yeah. A better I, I, I honestly think it would have gone from, you know, a D to like a C plus in that case. I, I thought Cara Delevingne was competent. She's never been great. She's, but... like, she's a lot better than he is. Oh, God, yeah, Miles. She has Miles. More, a lot more personality in that the, than he does. That says those more two, about his performance than hers. Those two actors remind me of what the monkeys were. You know, like the, mon- <laughs> the monkeys were that group of people who are clearly talented, but they were there because they're manufactured by TV executives to produce something that's a hit. Like, those two actors are like that. They're like, somehow they grew them in a lab somewhere and aged them up to 23 and then dropped them in this movie. They doesn't. They don't feel. They don't feel homegrown. They don't feel organic. No. Yeah. You All don't... they really want to do is really act, but they keep getting put in these crappy movies. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Poor Cara Delevingne, who's like a model and comes from a, a very wealthy family. Oh, I yeah. feel so bad for her not oh, being yeah. able to realize her dreams of being a serious actress. How can a movie get everything right except for the characters and the plot That's and the what script? I don't get. Oh, I don't get it. <laughs> you know, funny enough to bring this back to Keanu. Um, so what is it called? River's Edge. That was uh, Ioni Sky's first film. Oh. You know? She was a model, too. And I personally, I don't think her performance in that film was very good. But no, it's kind of just an interesting parallel there of, you know, some of that does fit into that other world as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but then again, it never feels as wooden. There's something that feels stilted about everything that everyone says in Valerian with the exception of a couple characters that can kind of make it work, like for instance, Ethan Hawke's cameo. He's really good. Yeah. He's a yeah, skeevy dude. Yeah, he nails it. And the same thing, like um, I like uh, Clive Owen. By the way, uh, Clive Owen's uniform in that movie is my favorite thing I've seen on a screen in a while. <laughs> it's it's really really good. I mean, just a little attention to details, like the thing on his hat that has that sort of circuit board pattern and. It's like little stuff like that that this movie just nails. And mm-hmm. why can't this other stuff be there where it's almost like 
everyone did their job beautifully after a certain point, but that seed that it sprung from was just so flawed that there's really no level of building on top of that foundation yeah. that you can do to make a great movie that even if you fix the dialogue in bits, you still basically have the same kind of Avatar dances with wolves plot that you've seen a thousand times. Yeah, I, I feel like the, I felt the exact same thing about this movie that I did with the John Carter movie. Um, they're both adaptations of Beloved. I suppose Valerian is Beloved They just because they told us it was. I'm not well, sure if it really was. But, I mean, they're both yeah. adaptations. They both suffer from the fact that they've got lead actors who are just of questionable quality. Um, but the world building, the world visualization is like, this is cool. I like this. I'd like to, I'd like it, I'd like it if uh, the movie lived up to what I felt about the first 15 minutes of it, which was like, I was in awe. And then nothing came of it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. How it's can, disappointing. It isn't like a side character ruined it. It was like the characters themselves were like the most, I've seen this a thousand times, surrounded in a, in a visual shell of something I haven't seen before. I think it's just it's I think it's an issue of a director being too close. That's really what I what I come away from is like it was just too close and he didn't make those little changes that you need to make, you know, it's the it's, problem It's a question of execution. Yeah. It's not about the story, it's not about the characters, it's about the actors and the director and you know, even people like the cinematographer who are and are not able to work with the material that they have and turn that into something that people are really going to love. You know, I think that's that's really the difference between a good actor and a great actor is that a good a good actor can portray a character convincingly and make you really, you know, feel for them when they have a good role. A great actor can take garbage and turn it into gold. Yes. Mm, and you see yes. that with somebody like I'm just going to pull an example Bill Nye in mm. the third Underworld movie, which oh. is legitimately that movie is trash not garbage. B- not Bill Nye the Science Guy. Not Bill Nye the Science yeah, Guy. Whoa. Bill, Bill <laughs> Nye the British uh, actor. He played Davy Jones in yeah. the Pirates of the Caribbean yeah. movies. Wonderful British actor, and he plays the bad guy in this movie. He actually dies in the first one. Spoiler, but this is a flashback, and the entire movie is him just gloriously chewing the fir- the, the scenes. For the entire movie. And it's amazing because he's taking this horrible dialogue and this wretched script and just elevating into them something amazing by wildly overacting in every scene. And you have to be a great actor to do that. I've said that, too, about Ian McDermott in the Star Wars prequels, that I think that those movies are garbage and you can Mike, really... how dare you say something good about the prequels? Well, I'm just... How dare you? I, I root for the Emperor for a reason in those movies, which is he's the only person who's fun to watch. I mean... Yeah, abs- it's, and it's that factor. It's... When he's on screen, you're having fun. Yeah. It doesn't matter what's going on. That he's like almost orgasming from evil half of the time. <laughs> and, you know, it's just... It's not a story a Jedi would tell you, Mike. Uh, he's, and it's, he's great. And, and, and the stuff he's working with is so minimal that if you can find some level of human warmth, I think... Ian, what's his name? Uh, Liam Neeson comes about as close to anyone else to matching that, where you can find some level of warmth in this stilted wooden dialogue that is just awful. And, and again, it's not as if other people in these movies are bad. We have Ewan McGregor. We have um, Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman. These are Who's all not a bad actress. These are all great people. I've seen them. Be and he was awesome. apparently Keira Knightley half the time. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think yeah. There's some there's some actors that are just a joy to watch, regardless of. I, I love Charles Dance. You know, on oh, yeah. Last Action Hero and The Golden Child. And Game of Thrones. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, especially Game of Thrones. Tywin. Because he's brilliant as Tywin. 
Um, he's on. Uh, he does this thing um, uh, on Channel Four on the BBC. They have this uh, twice a year. They do the big fat quiz of everything. It's hosted by Jimmy Carr. And I, if you're into quizzes and people it's being hilarious, it is amazing. Thank you, thank you, Brian. Uh, no problem. They have Charles Dance <laughs> read excerpts. There was a, a few years ago. There was a clip of Charles Dance reading from Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh. That is from the Big Fat Quiz. And hearing Charles Dance say "kinky fuckery," best, like one of the best moments of my life. Like my wedding, really my child being born, Charles Dance saying "kinky, kinky fuckery." Like, it's, you know what I, I love about Charles Dance is that there's this indescribable thing in his eyes. That tells you that you're testing his patience. <laughs> yes, and even it, when he smiles, it gets worse when he smiles. Oh, God, you feel like you feel like your life is in your hands while he's staring somebody down. It's worse when he's not talking, and you feel like at any moment he may just have enough, and he'll just like touch a button on his desk, and people will come out. They'll drag you away for you to be shot, yeah. and ten minutes later he'll forget about you. <laughs> That's Charles. I mean, it's like he's like that in like the Imitation Game. He's like that in Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just great in everything. No, he really is. The presence of just the guy's terrifying. He no, he absolutely is, and I think he brings that to bear in just about everything he's in. And that's that you can watch him in a movie that is way not quality because not that I think Last Action Hero is actually a tremendously great movie. I think it does not get enough love. Yeah. But um, I think that you could put Charles Dance in just about anything and he would be a joy to watch regardless of the quality of what was going on around him. Yeah, I think that's that's a hard thing to find. It is. I think you have to star in some real shit. Yeah. There's not. I mean, there's. It's not like we're spoiled for choice there. You know, it's. Uh, or we are spoiled for choice there because there is so much shit. There really there is, is so much garbage. And uh, again, a really, I think giving somebody something like again the Star Wars prequels, those are movies that may, they're so bad that Sam Jackson is boring in them. Mm-hmm. That should be impossible. What, it's okay, so what about the opposite? What about when you have a really great film and then you've got that one <laughs> actor in it that you're just like, really? Uh, a la Cameron Diaz in Gangs of New York, where you're like, you mm. do not belong oh. here. You are pulling down the quality of this movie just by, and it's not your fault. It's just that you're hopelessly outclassed by everybody else well, in this movie. What, what's worse to me than just an actor not, not able to or not giving it 100% is decisions that are purely made. Uh, casting decisions, character adding characters, and that are purely made not for this. This is important to the story, or this flushes it out. And the, the, my big bugaboo, and this what this might make me uh, part of the alt left. I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> is putting in characters for the Chinese market that don't belong there. So oh, I saw. God, so yeah. I saw the new King Kong movie, which was all right. I mean, like I like they they did a lot of stuff that I liked about it, but you can only go so far. Where ninety. Five percent of the movie is either actress behind a green screen or CGI stuff. But there's a character who is a like a geologist or a biologist, a biologist or something. You don't, I don't even know who's some Chinese actress, a young twenty-something Chinese actress. Um, the character's name I don't remember. The character did nothing in the entire movie, and maybe for the cut in, in China, maybe she had a couple scenes where she talked, you know, she talked more or whatever. Um, but her inclusion as a character was purely to be like, well, so we can do this in China, and there can be we can put this this actor on the poster and that we can sell it to that that stuff infuriates me to no end because every every scene that i'm looking at them i'm like why are you there you don't you don't even have a role here you have no purpose it's it's not it's not just actors this is something that is infiltrating movies at every level you have marvel films where in one film tony stark is handling some kind of like you know 
magic piece of glass future technology. And in the next film, he's holding some random, like, middle market cheap Chinese Android phone because they have to involve Chinese companies in the production somehow. And, like, this is something that is infecting the film industry on many levels. And the thing that just bugs me the most with this is that it's not like you can't find great Chinese actors that could translate into an American audience. Donnie Yen! (laughs) I love Donnie Yen so much, I didn't appreciate him. I thought he was one of the one shining lights of uh, Rogue One, which I know that uh, Joe and I disagree on. But Donnie Yen is great, and I only appreciated him that much more after I saw a bunch of his own movies, seeing the Ip Man movies and seeing like Kung Fu Jungle and a bunch of stuff that he's in. He is amazing. It, and, yeah. And uh, why don't you get more of him and stuff? Let him Kung Fu the shit I, out of I some think, stuff. I think it's because they just don't have writers who can write for these characters. I think if you bring someone like <laughs> Michelle Yeoh into a into a movie, you're going to make her play like a Japanese character and it's going to have no context in who she is as an actor, as a Chinese actor. I just think, I don't think people know how to write for them. And when they are forced to sort of ham-fistedly insert them into it, it's an afterthought and not something that's organic and part of a story. And so it becomes even more odious for us as movie watchers to be like, this is crap. I'm seeing it as a business decision making its way onto the screen. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. And know, that's the thing. Hollywood is a business, and they're, they're putting those things in there for, you know, for the money. And it's so painful. But, but they could do it artfully. There's no right. reason why they couldn't do it artfully. There's absolutely a reason that they can't do it artfully, and that's because it's not sincere. No. And audiences <laughs> will immediately sniff out insincerity. Well, you can you can do this with I think I didn't even see the last couple of Transformers movies, but I think the one before last night had I think three or four different really obvious Chinese product placements like uh, you know Stanley Tucci drinking like a coconut water or something it's, and it's, I don't care you could throw all that shit that you want to mm-hmm. in a movie that is throwaway and forgettable like Transformers fine I you know I, I put it on, throw it on the trash heap I don't care but when it starts infecting stuff where there's some like legit good ideas where this could be a movie that had some actual depth and you're just tossing stuff on, on the top so you can you know, we can play in more theaters in China. Like, it becomes a problem because then I don't want to watch your movie. Then I don't want to give you your money for the movie. Is a Chinese audience so, uh, is a Chinese audience so easily placated that they're super happy that a person they recognize is on screen for five minutes? Well, sometimes it has to do with the fact that these movies have to go through. They have to be it's, made in partnership. No. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But there's, I believe that there is a specific law in China that in order for them to qualify for certain like permits or mm. whatever, that the film has to have like X percentage of content that is associated with China. Yeah. Mm. Chinese yeah. characters, Chinese whatever. Like they have to stuff in a certain amount of it to qualify to be even like screened there. I don't know why it would have to be so so hammered in and so uncomfortable in that fitting because what I've I've watched a lot of movies this year including watched a lot of movies that were made in China and some of them have some amazing actors and amazing scenes and things like that. I see no reason why a lot of these people aren't being picked for something. Maybe they aren't the right spokesman for the right hand lotion in China or whatever. But <laughs> there are there are people that I get excited when I see them in certain movies that are made out of that country. Like Louis Fan. Louis Fan is somebody that I get fucking excited for. You might know him as the lead character in the story of Ricky. But he shows up and stuff, and he's a legitimately amazing martial artist with a really expressive face, who has a lot of personality, who makes everything he's a part of better. Yet, why, you know, 
why well, get it, him in something? It's for the exact same reason that his stage name is Lewis. Mm-hmm. I can guarantee you that's not his birth name. Oh, it's but not. But he adopted that specifically so he'd be more palatable to a certain kind of audience. And it's the exact same thing is that Hollywood is trying to sell these films in America and sell it to a Western audience. And at the same time, they have to insert just enough material to get it into China so that they can tap that market, too. But they're not going to try and actually sincerely adopt that content and make it a real part of their production because that's going to alienate Westerners because people are dumb. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I would like to, just as a retort, I'd like to give um, American audiences more credit because we've certainly been appropriating cultures from around the world through our movies for a long time. And I think we're, I think we're all children of that generation who absorbed so much about the world through watching TV and movies that we know things now, we quote-unquote know things now, because they were somebody made an, a decision to have a part of the story be here or have a character be from here. Um, I, think, I think Americans are, would be far more able to sort of incorporate and enjoy things that were uh, as part of these markets if they were done in a way that's sort of consistent with the language of cinema and the expectations of certain certain genres but like i said it's 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 evident with these is that it's not something that's artfully crafted around a story it's something that's ham-fistedly put over the top i just i i would give american audiences more credit and i would love to be give people that level of credit and i believe that there are a lot of people out there who can do that but just given like the political climate that we have going on in the United States right at this specific moment, like you don't think that there is 10% of people who, if this movie has two lead Chinese actors, would go, nope, not seeing that. Well, Fast and the Furious is, is, a, is a counter-argument because that that's an ex- insanely successful movie domestically and internationally, and its cast is mostly not white people. Mostly, um, and I think it. I think it works. I think um, I think Americans respond to it, and I think they can obviously sell, you know, five hundred million dollars worth of tickets elsewhere and make it work. Well, and I think I. I, I don't. I. I hesitate to give movie studios this much credit, right? I think what they are doing is they understand that China is a huge market, and they are doing the bare minimum. To get their movies shown there, yeah, it's not even about. I don't even. I'm. I'm going to guarantee you that discussions about well, we could do this and make a much better product are not. Why think about making um, a, a tasteful movie with uh, you know a Chinese cast or at least you know one or two Chinese ca- characters in in major supporting roles or even major leading roles. When you can just shoehorn Chinese technology into Avengers and send that over there, yeah. right? Like, why even make that decision? Movie execs are all about a bottom line. Well, well, they, forty-seven and, Ronin was case in point, right? Is that uh, if you try to have a a mostly non-white cast and then just throw in a Keanu Reeves to get people in the audience, it's not going to be enough. No, no, absolutely yeah. not. And I think that yeah. you know, I do think that there is a certain amount of xenophobia, but in, in American movie-going audiences. But I also think. Movie executives are constantly chasing the next high. And because attitudes shift and who knows what's going to do this. I mean, look at Logan. I thought that Mm. was either going to be more garbage or, you know, popular garbage or maybe something that was interesting and useful that people just kind of passed by. Right. 
but it was a critical uh, success, and it was a it was a theatrical success as well. Like sure. people flocked to see that fucking movie. Sure. And that movie did a lot of things that fly in the face of conventional wisdom about telling that kind of story. It was subtle. It was not heavily scored. It was it was deeply felt and genuine. That's like this is a superhero movie we're talking about, right? right? So I think that just kind of. It's uh, to them. It's just a decision of like we can put this person there. We can save this much money, and we can make five hundred thousand dollars or five hundred. Yeah, five hundred five hundred million dollars. And I would China. say to 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 the point about Logan, it wouldn't have been possible if audiences hadn't already been familiar with uh, a franchise that entire franchise, and also Hugh Jackman as that character. You couldn't have just spun out some new actor, that new character, and done it and have people come in droves oh, no, and absolutely. feel what they felt about it. You couldn't have made that movie if it was called Cyclops. No, no. absolutely not. <laughs> like, yes. that was, that, you were able to get away with that because it was Wolverine with everything behind that name. And that's yeah. 14, what is that, 14 years, well, no. 17. 17 years of him being that character. And this is the problem with the DC Cinematic Universe is that Marvel took it took them how long to get to Avengers and it's like that's an earned moment right mm-hmm. and this is and this, what is it, what it all comes back to right is that studios are going to do the bare minimum that will get them the, they're min maxers right they're, yeah. they're like <laughs> i'm going to spend i'm going to spend this amount of time and energy to do this and it will get me 10 times 100 times more over here rather yeah. than actually trying to introduce audiences to new leading i mean look at Ghost in that's, the Shell. That's that how it worked been... when I was in independent cinema, too. Exactly what you're describing. Like, we just did the straight-to-video stuff, but as long as we, you know, check those boxes, like, do we have at least a C-level actor that somebody will recognize? Does it involve a genre? Blah, blah, blah. Once all those things were lined up, as long as we shot it for under two hundred grand, we were going to make an additional $500,000 off of it. Wow. Like, the yeah. only way it wouldn't happen was if we didn't follow the formula and fucked it up. Yeah, you know, so. right? it's, yeah, and but it's, yeah, I think the other thing that gives Logan a, a lot of power, kind of getting back to that, is the the idea that that earned moment of this is a character who's now old and this is his last story, and also the metatextual knowledge you have that this is literally this actor's last story, and that there are people who are teenagers who grew up with this guy in the role now. It's it's kind of like watching The Crow after you know Brendan Lee dies yeah, right yeah, there's yeah. something that's special about it because uh because of the meta idea about it and you're you're watching the end of this character you're watching the end of this actor as well but also the fact that Hugh Jackman had built up you know built up a lot of clout over the time he'd played this character that he is a draw that he is a guy who has the ability now to call in all of those favors to get it done in the way that he wants. And he knows that he can call them all in because this is definitively his last time in the role. And he has a lot more power than when he was making X-Men Origins Wolverine and can say, no, I want to skin away all that crap I don't like and have this sort of unified vision between him, the writer and the director. And I think that there isn't a real willingness to do that because so much money is riding on this shit nowadays. Oh, yeah. That they aren't going to give anyone that much autonomy. Yeah. Well, and that's the interesting thing about, uh, from what Brian was saying, about how you can kind of do the Mad Lib movie where you've got, okay, I've got A, B, C, and D. I've spent under this amount. We are definitely going to make this amount. And... All right, we've got like $200 million riding on this movie. We have to do everything possible to maximize our profit. Otherwise, careers are going into the toilet. 
Yeah, and you got to walk into a meeting and explain this to some asshat who right. drove in in a car that's worth more than your entire life <laughs> and can destroy the rest of your life. And you got to tell him to his face that you're not going to waste his $200 million. Yeah, and, no. you, and he's also going to be a person that has, A, no idea how people actually function, B, yes. no idea how his own business actually functions, and C, has no idea about what you're talking about or care only cares about the bottom line. What was it? Christopher Nolan was, I think this is one of those Vanity Fair interviews where they get a whole bunch of directors um he was talking who was he talking another director that was starting on doing superhero stuff and he described the per, the process of working on a big uh huge superhero project as uh if you do something wrong they'll come to your house and kill your children and i have to i have to imagine that when you're in that situation and there's like a billion dollars riding on what you're doing you just can't make that kind of mistake right there's some oh, yeah. serious consequences but I, I also look at who are the directors that get chosen to get these big superhero roles and a lot of times it is people that have done a lot of television or they've done a lot of small films like the guy who's directing Thor Ragnarok did one of my favorite movies of the last year, which is Hunt, Hunt, Hunt for the Wilder People. It also Great did um, uh, What We Do in the Shadows, which yeah. is fantastic. I mean, there's nothing that you yes. you get looking at those two movies that said, I'm going to give this guy a massive universal blockbuster. But I, I think that one, they show that this person can do a story, that they can do create compelling characters. And I think they also, what they don't have is the ability to to say no. They don't well, have yeah, that same right? clout because they're still up and coming. They are critically acclaimed, but they're still small enough so that they can't – you can – they'll go without your vision, right? Well, Mar- Mar- they Mar- sort of force been... your influence onto them still. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Marvel has been really good in this regard because you know, look at who they were picking to direct even their early films. Mm-hmm. Who directed the first Thor movie? Oh, Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh. (laughs) Who in their right mind would say, hey, we're going to do a Thor movie. Who do we get for this? I know Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. I mean, where does that even come from? And I think that that's part of the genius of Marvel is that they're not doing the Mad Libs movie thing, that they're actually really considering, like, who are we doing? Well, they kind of do these They kind of are doing them now. They kind of are. They're at at a point now where there kind of is. A foot, a, right, well, a Mar- Marvel cinema. A, right, a there's a Marvel formula. cinema formula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is not necessarily the Hollywood movie formula, which sure. is why they're picking guys like I don't know his name off of the top of my head, but the guy who's doing Thor Ragnarok, like Waikiki, Waikiki, Taito Waititi, I think is his name. Yeah, like that. That is not somebody who you would immediately go, yeah, let's give this guy two hundred and fifty million dollars to churn out our blockbuster. Or how about Josh Trank? Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Clearly, sometimes this doesn't work out. Oh <laughs> well, yeah. But you can tell that DC You can tell that DC is still not up to speed on this process because they're still doing like the fact that Wonder Woman was a success was a huge, massive surprise to them, and they're now in negotiations with Patty Jenkins to try and get her back, and she's basically just looking at whatever number they've given her for how much she's going to get to the direct the next one and just kind of slowly pushing get it across good. the table good going this needs a couple of more zeros yeah she's in a position now where she's all they have that they have burned so many bridges i think that the 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 critical um happiness they've gotten about wonder woman sort of took them aback because i think they release any movie and then immediately sort of brace themselves because they have <laughs> they have gotten a beating i mean honestly this is the first movie that they've put out that has a positive response since the dark knight 
in 2008. Wow. Yeah. Well, so, and they I mean, rightfully deserved beating. Yeah. Because they're hurrying out movies, and they're not, like, the thing that's making Marvel successful is they have a brand yeah. that they are selling. And DC does not, Zack Snyder is not a brand. Yeah, they haven't earned that brand. I mean, a lot of it, too, is that they committed very early to a specific thing that fell on its face. And then the the second one they put out just only heightened that negative backlash to mm-hmm. you know Batman v Superman was such, got such a critical beating that they were already in pre production on a bunch of stuff and it meant that they had to start changing things mid production and that just creates this horrible Frankenstein movie oh yeah and it sounds like Joss Whedon is on a pace to completely reshoot Justice League from start to finish. They'd have to make the movie from scratch, including rewriting it, if they're going to fix what it is. Because I think they were already making it when they were when they had already finished. um, It had already finished, like it was completely filmed and it was in post production. And you know, Zack Snyder now left, and you have Joss Whedon come in to just like finish up the movie. And they're in like month three of reshoots now. I think. Wow. Is any of that trailer? It is. Is any of that trailer going to be in the movie? I mean, there's been a lot of these Frankenstein um, releases in the last couple of years. I think Rogue One was another one where they made a thing. It wasn't what they wanted, so they remade most of the movie. And then you can look at that original teaser trailer and find so much stuff that isn't in that actual movie. Mm -hmm. And I think the same is happening with everything from Suicide Squad, which is probably the most botched version of this. Egregious. And I don't know. I think what the advantage Wonder Woman probably had was that it was the first movie that they started making after that, that critical beating they took. That it was the first one that at least had that that different perspective of we need to change course a little bit baked into the beginning and the the starting and the writing of that process rather than after the production was about halfway done. So at least then they could have sort of a consistent feel rather than, oh, crap, what do we do now? Everyone hates this thing that we've doubled down on. What else is popular and how can we force it into our movie? And I don't know. I don't think the DC brand is really salvageable, to be honest. It'll be interesting to see how they try to course correct over the next few movies. I'm really interested. I'm almost – I'm more interested in that. I'm not almost. I am definitely more interested in that than I I am in seeing any of their movies. I kind of have to disagree with you. I think that it is salvageable, and I think it's going to take three good films in a row. Yeah. Wonder Woman was good. Legitimately, it's not the greatest movie, but it was good. A lot of people liked it. It did a lot of good things. I think if they got two more successes in a row, and I don't think Justice League is going to be one, I think that would be enough to turn things around. Yeah. But I think you know they did something good. They're going to struggle again now because they've already got things in the pipeline that they're desperately trying to patch somehow, anyhow. And they're going to have to actually stop for a minute and really think about what they want to do and put out consistent films for a couple of years and I think at that point, then they could start to say, okay, we know what we're doing and where we're going from here. But they never want to take the time to actually think about a plan. It's just, what's popular right now? We're going to do that. So the, the question I sort of have for everybody, and it's a question I don't really have a good answer for, is the general audience out there, do they want another shared universe? Do they? I mean, it seems like that's the, the end thing, that they're trying to do this with Universal Monsters now, too. And it looks like that's already got off to a botched landing. 
do people really want a shared universe of anything? It seems like Marvel is this one thing that is that kind of product. Do they want like two or three of those things? You, you mean you're not up for the Amos and Andy shared universe cinematic? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I think there's a certain audience for it nowadays, clearly, but I think that uh, it's – I don't know. I don't know if somebody wants to commit to that much stuff. I think that – I think I, I can – I don't be- know. I, I think that we've had enough franchises over the years, Aliens, Star Wars, Star Trek, Fast J- and the Furious. James Bond. James Bond. But James like, Bond – There have been so many series of films – the only difference between the Marvel shared universe and any other series of films are the rate at which they're coming out and the fact that some of them have different characters than others. No, no. Well, the the adaptation from the medium, I think, is is actually important. So the the thing and, and this clearly sort of starts. We, I opened this up by talking about sort of the current generation of superhero movies, but really that the the fissure for me, the fissure point for me, is like three hundred and Sin City. Where there was a point at which you were like, well, fuck just making a movie based that somewhat lo- loosely adapted on a comic book. We're going to try to recreate the panels of a, of, a, of a comic book because that's how much we are, we're trying to worship the medium of, of comic books. And certainly what Marvel has done now is sort of a middle ground, right? Was they have a way of staying, making movies as movies, but staying mostly true to the characters and archetypes that have been established in these characters for 50, 60, 70 years. And, and I think that's entirely the right tact. I fought with Joe repeatedly talking about, like, Sin City, I did not think was a good movie. It was way too slavishly obedient to the comic book. You have to treat these movies as movies. But What did you I, guys think of Watchmen? I don't Ooh. like Watchmen. <laughs> um, and I think, I think Sorry, Spot. I think with Watchmen, Watch, no, 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 it's good. No, it's good. I, I, it's good. I think the important thing with Watchmen is that it's a, it's Zack Snyder again. But I think it's the the thing that Zack Snyder does over and over and over again, which is he's slavishly loyal to the what did you call it the accoutrement, the external accoutrement, yes. yeah, uh, where he he does something like you know Hollis Mason, the original Night Owl, has exactly the same sign outside of his auto repair shop. But he misses the fucking point, the heart of the story. That the right? outer yeah. shell is is the stuff that that. But he doesn't understand that Rorschach is not an aspirational character, and that it's not about the super cool, awesome blood, you know, wire food type stuff. That Watchmen is a story about making these characters look like shit. Really, it's about how these heroic archetypes put against any kind of a realistic world. Is it? It ultimately is. It's sad. It's pathetic, and it's a failure. Well, uh, Brian is the actually the one who introduced me to Watchmen. I read it because he had the he had the, at, our, at our apartment. Brian, did you? What did you think of the adaptation? Uh, we went to go see uh, the movie at work one day, the day it came out. Um, we had a studio or a, a movie theater right next door, so a bunch of us went over there. It was a bunch of comic book nerds. I am not a comic book nerd, just for the record. Um, I have only understood a, a small percentage of what you guys have talked about with the comic <laughs> book specifics. I, with that being said, I've grown up around comic book dudes, so I actually know much more than I'm letting on. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, um, I kind of view myself as a generalist when it comes to like experiencing comic book world. And I, I did not like Watchmen because hmm. I was annoyed to shit that he seemed to be trying to shoot every single comic book panel. And after doing that, then he switches the ending. It's yeah. like, what? He, yeah, that was... He could, he could have been forgiven for that, I think, because I agree. something had to give, because that's an incredible payoff. There's a lot of, of run-up that he had to do to make it. 
squid monster land on the uh, uh, also it's a lot you got to spin the, up the other that. problem with watchmen is that watchmen is very specifically the comic book of watchmen is a deconstruction of a medium and the tropes of that medium that had been built up at that point for like 50 years and very good point. you have to make a completely different thing that if you're going to make a watchmen movie You'd have to make it at a time like now when the tropes of superhero movies are a thing. And that's what you'd have to deconstruct. So that it's about that, the deconstruction of this thing that you're familiar with. And it's not about making these things look cool because superheroes always look cool. It's about putting them in a different context and looking at the things and the assumptions that we have. And it was really just more of the same of people looking as cool as possible, which is really the thing that Zack Snyder wants to do. It's interesting. I think that can still happen, still, even without being the Watchmen. I mean, you guys are comic book guys, so, I mean, you know the boys, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah the, and I've heard that that's already been optioned off, and we're probably going to see that coming to the screen one day, right? The boys, oh, I'm sure. is, Maybe. Less, the boys is less a deconstruction of superheroes and more of <laughs> Garth Ennis just, like, fucking... How can we get nasty? Pand- like, yeah. basically pandering to people that hate superheroes because he himself hates superheroes. I think I liked the Watchmen movie. I mean, I didn't love it, but I thought it was okay because it's a B plus movie. It's a, yeah, I think it's a B plus. I would, I would, I would say that. Yeah, I would even, I would even agree with like a B minus movie. But yeah, I think the thing is, to be. the thing to me is that I am also as somebody that loves the medium of comic books. I am so fucking tired of people trotting out Watchmen every time we need to talk about the literary (laughs) fucking merits of comic books. That was 30 years ago, people. There have been so many better fucking depictions of that done since then. Yes, did it change things? Absolutely. So did The Dark Knight Returns. Are there still, are there things in there that are still relevant and should be talked about? Yes. But can we all please stop jerking off about Watchmen? Yeah, and it, it, it might yeah, be, that is true. It might be because of what Mike and I have talked about before, which is that we're, we are at this place where these sort of like really transitional, uh, complete bodies of works, uh, of comic book works are hard to come by, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. uh, we, we talked, I think we talked about you, like DC has their, uh, their Dark Knight Returns, right? Marvel doesn't have that. Marvel doesn't have that one book where that for that one character that was like that was like oh my god like this is great storytelling this was this transitioned the character into something that you'd never you'd never seen or or read before there the, are a few there are yeah and so and, uh, interestingly at least one of them is Frank Miller again. well yeah, yeah so, well, Daredevil right the, yeah right. so yes. it's it is a little bit in in DC you can you can point to these specific where you can point right. to Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. You can point to Alan Moore's Watchmen. You can point to The Dark Knight Returns as these but kind I'm, of so moments. Something that's like a bite size, and, not, yeah. not not you know not three hundred issues of Hellblazer. And, and Marvel, you know, and Marvel, it's a little less defined because it's it's runs right. It's Walter Simonson's run yeah, well, on Thor, which is very heavily influencing Ragnarok. Absolutely, it's, but DC was putting out prestige format books absolutely. and short runs at yeah. a time that Marvel was not, and right. so they have these classic events. The Killing Joke is yeah. a forty-four issue comic book that was put out as a special prestige format. Marvel didn't do that. At you mean the forty-four time. page comic book? I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it, I don't. I don't. In terms of the ones that you put on this this like uh, pillar of comic book, you know, literature. This this idea of building this thing up. I don't see a lot of Marvel on there. I think Marvel does, and has done a lot of excellent examples of this genre of of comic books, but not excellent examples of comic books. 
Like, this is really high-quality superhero stuff. Yeah. As opposed to this is changing how I look at this medium and what this medium can do. And I think the Daredevil is probably – the Frank Miller Daredevil is probably as close as we've come. Yeah, with Born Marvel Again. Comics. Yeah, I think, I think Born Again, and I think you have – because those there's three runs that are spoken about in kind of the same hollow tones. There's Frank Miller's Daredevil, John Byrne's Fantastic Four, and Walt Simonson's Thor. And they were all coming out around the same time. And they were all doing – they were all radically altering the way these characters were perceived. But it was a much more specific thing with a much more ill-defined edge. And Claremont's X-Men. Oh, yeah. Well, Claremont's X-Men, which went on way too long. Yeah, and then for, he fucking, for like 20 years. Yeah. And then he just went insane. What, but, I, I mean, I think the reason yeah, why you're... familiar with Claremont's X-Men. What, what oh, exactly is the defining uh, factor? Of that? Uh, the, so you've got the original five X-Men from the 60s, and then you've got the team that's like Storm, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Shadowcat, Banshee. You know, Pride, Banshee. Gotcha. That's the beginning of the Chris Claremont era yeah. when he sweeps away the old characters and brings in this new set of X-Men. And, and it he does started, it for like 20 years, right? Yeah, it started oh, yeah. in the late 70s and ran all the way up through the early 90s. 90s yeah. yeah, so basically the X-Men at that point was not a high-selling comic book that they had never been a high-selling comic book and that they were on the edge of cancellation. And when the Claremont crew took over, they were basically a reprint title, that they were reprinting stuff that they had done in the 60s, but just keeping the numbering going up. And they had done that for like the past five years. They hadn't put anything new out. And at that point, they were like, well, basically, let's throw out every character except for Cyclops and create this whole new team. And and most of the things that you know about the X-Men, including a lot of the stuff with uh, Magneto not being just a supervillain who wants to rule the world in a vague kind of way, but the idea of this sort of angry revolutionary, uh, the idea of mutant oppression, that stuff really kind of coalesced with Claremont. Mm -hmm. And he wrote those characters for the longest time, and he left it not because his run was finished, but because he was having editorial issues with Marvel because they wanted to give more and more power to these superstar artists, in this case, Jim Lee, mm-hmm. and wanting him to co-plot stuff, and he didn't want to give that up. Yeah, he actually left Marvel and went over to DC to do a creator-owned book called Sovereign 7. Yeah. yeah. Which nobody remembers. Nobody. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the, the, it was a book that he turned from the lowest-selling thing in Marvel to the highest-selling thing in Marvel. And I know it... Some point in the '80s or '90s, they said if you actually account for sales for just the X-Men titles that were coming out, they were the third biggest comic book company. Huh. Yeah. yeah. No, that's. I mean, X-Men was. I mean, isn't X-Men number one still the best-selling comic of all time? Yeah, the one from 1991. Yeah, with the, with the Jim two. Lee called the seven variants and the Jim Lee cover, and mm-hmm. it's going to keep that record too because oh, yeah. comics don't sell that well in single issues anymore. I want. I want to go back to what you were asking before, Mike. Though, about do people have the capacity? You know, do people want more shared universes? And I think the answer is yes. I think that there is a limited tolerance for superheroes. I think eventually the wheel's going to turn and superheroes are not going to be the big thing anymore. But you're talking about a time now where Game of Thrones is close to ending and HBO is talking about doing four spinoff series Mm. from this. Yeah. That you have the capacity to sustain a franchise with a much more niche audience than was once possible. And so you're going to be able to cultivate these sophisticated audiences who are willing to wait 
for things and willing to really invest themselves in and follow things. And I think that doing something like a shared universe where you've got one set of characters and then you've got another set of characters and you can bring them together and you can pull them apart. I think that there's going to be interest in more things like that, whether they're superhero based or not, whether they're adaptations or not. I think the idea of cinematic universes, if for no other reason than the fact that Marvel has been so wildly successful with them, is going to mean that that is something that we're going to have for the next 15 to 20 years. I think they've also been uniquely successful with them. That I can't think of anything else because aside from that, there's a huge buy-in factor in terms of the amount of stuff they want people to pay for is so big. And I don't know anything like that. I mean, I mean, is, but well, is it any bigger than if you're looking, if you're expanding the scope of what you're they're expecting, what a movie studio will put into a franchise? Consider that Star Wars is on a whole. If you don't count just box office sales, if you count breakfast cereals and toys and Halloween costumes, well, just licensing and at book and licensing, um, the buy-in for something like Star Wars is is going to completely eclipse Marvel forever, I think. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, the difference between this is all products of the same type and this is stuff that's stuff of that. Like, for instance, you know, Ant-Man is in the same thing, that this product counts in the jungle of all these products. And I think the difference between this and, say, like James Bond, which was mentioned before, is James Bond's had 24 movies. But they're all movies starring the same character that they come out every couple of years. And they're like sequels to each other that encapsulate this one character and the world in his general vicinity. It's sort of like if there was another series. If they wanted to go universe, it's like, oh, let's do a movie showing how Q got into his whole thing. And here's another movie about Money Penny. He looks lighter. Well, do, yeah. do we want to count Aliens and Predator as a cinematic universe because they have crossed over? Uh, oh. We have established, uh. not just in that film, but over the films, mm-hmm. that these characters exist in the same reality. Yeah. Freddy Jason. Did that start in film or did it start? Did that it story started start in, in Predator 2 with an yeah. alien skull on the wall? It was a set design call out. Yeah, it was it wasn't, a, it wasn't it was a voodoo a, guy's place. Yeah, it was, yeah. A, it was an Easter egg that they started the million nerds arguing yeah. over that thing. <laughs> that one, one prop made them do this forever. The same thing as a Jason movie. Where at the end, Jason's mask is sitting and this, this Freddy Krueger glove comes out of the ground and pulls it down into hell. And I think that that's all they really intended it for was just like, hey, this is kind of cool, folks. And they're like, fuck, now we have to make this shit. Because they did that, that uh, thing in Predator 2 in 1990. And what was it? 2004 when they finally yeah. made Aliens versus Predator. I mean, they yeah. made every other kind of product that was Aliens versus Predator, <laughs> including video games and comic books. And I think the only reason that movie ended up happening is Dark Horse Comics, mm-hmm. who realized at some point that they had the license to both these things. It's like, hey, how about we actually fucking do this? And well, all this stuff we're talking about, people thought was crazy before. Like, you can't link that shit. But now, like, with our generation as we've gotten older, like, that's what we've grown up with. Yeah, well, yeah. we had a generation of kids who grew up with these toys who just played with all the toys together because why would you not do that? Mm-hmm. Team-ups. Yeah. Team-ups. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is the interesting thing. I think a universe, a shared universe is our fine concept. And I think people will pretty much go out to see them regardless, right? But I think as they increase... Your shared universe fatigue is going to increase. And I also think you're going to start running into the problem eventually of 
All right. Well, now it's not like the Marvel TV shows where you can just pretty much come in and watch those independently. And then I've heard you can just watch Defenders. You don't really need to watch anything that came before it. Like if you start, it's like, do you need to does coming in and watching Civil War without watching the Winter Soldier or watching some of the stuff that's come before it? Is that going to really detract from your experience of it? Not really. But how long until that's the case? How long until you're coming into these movies without any context? And that's always what I think about. It's like, it's all well and good to spin Jinx from Die Another Day off into her own cinematic series, which would make me want to kill myself. But, like, how long before people are just like, we don't care? It's funny because you're just saying, how long before it becomes like comic books? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is exactly, no, that's exactly the the comparison that I was building towards is that this is the biggest problem with DC is the biggest problem with Marvel right now and they're each come they've each come up with ways to try and combat it which are awful which is how do you market to a new audience when you have fucking 30 years of X-Men uh, continuity that is the most convoluted shit on the planet well I, th- I think the movies have one thing going for them that the comic books don't which is that you can always churn out a new Captain America comic book at a certain point Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans are going to go we're not we can't play these characters anymore. And it looks like Marvel is already positioning themselves to kind of push those characters off to the side. And okay, they had yeah. their day and they're gone now. What, what is and it that- here are these other characters that we're bringing in. And so yeah. you have the capacity for change where it's like, oh, I don't, I don't know what happened in Captain America 2. Well, it doesn't matter. That was 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. But, but I also think of it like there's a limit to novelty. that you've, like When the first Avengers movie came out, the idea that there were all these singular movie star characters that were appearing in their own movies, that they were having their own adventures. They weren't necessarily even in the same genre. But then suddenly we were going to take them all together. It's like if you made a movie where suddenly, you know, John Matrix from Commando and John McClane and, <laughs> I don't know, just like a, and Rocky Balboa, and they all teamed up, and you're like, what the, the fuck expendables? is... Expendables? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, yeah. Expendables. But if you, and that it, was a great movie. But if great. You took, but if you took these, and they were not, not just playing, you know... The, the archetype of themselves, but they were literally teaming up in a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen kind of way. It's yeah. like, holy shit, this is incredible. And I think what they did with, with the Avengers was you can do that once, and they just kind of have to keep upping what is considered novelty. And clearly with the next Avengers movie, it's we're going to team up with the Guardians of the Galaxy now. Mm-hmm. And it's like we got to have to do increasing team-ups, what can you do after that? What can you do? It's going to break eventually. If I know anything about Hollywood, the longer they do one thing, the higher the odds of them fucking it up are. You know? like this. We're kind of describing we are the world here. Everybody was really pumped about that at first, because like Michael Jackson and Rod Stewart were in the same room. Holy shit. But God help us. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I just want to say for the record, like I said, it it would take about three good movies in a row for DC to establish themselves. I think Marvel would have to put out three bad films in a row before people would start to say, you know what, maybe the party's over. Well, there's, mm. a, there's a bit of a delayed effect. So think about the three Star Trek reboot movies where um, the first movie was incredibly strong. The second movie was strong in the box office but was not as well received. And it was – people thought that it was sort of – that was a disappointment. And, but that movie still made a shit ton of money. Um, but when the third movie came out, that was arguably a much better exemplar for the sort of the whole the franchise. 
uh, it made it made it was terrible at the box office because the effects of the disappointment were delayed by years. So this is the same thing with Marvel is it would take three or that fourth one to actually start to really fail. You know, yeah. you wouldn't actually see it until, you know, two years or three years down the line. Yeah, it's and it's going to happen that you can oh. only kick this stuff down the road so long. And it can also become this is the thing with with anything. Remember when Marvel in the early 2000s created the ultimate universe? No, Which, because yeah. I don't think about that. Yeah. But yeah. They, they rebooted all of these characters and tried to go back to to basics and saying, hey, ultimate Spider-Man, he's a teenager. We're going to strip away all of this built up continuity and it's going to be this clean break, this easy jumping on point for new readers. But the problem is then you start writing stories. And you know what stories do? They add continuity. Well, and then you give it to Brian Michael. Michael Bendis, that was your first mistake. Yeah. But it's it's crazy because you have with, with that is that because all the people writing this stuff are in this mad dash to catch up with the other ones. So instead yeah, of... We have to do Ultimate Venom and Ultimate Green Goblin and Ultimate, and Ultimate Carnage. Vulture. Yeah. And just, we have to bring back everything that we just got rid of. Yeah. <laughs> that it's not back to basics anymore, but it's happening at a much faster pace that those characters were created over 50 years. And now they're happening over three. Yeah. And it's, it's like, why can't we t- – you already went back to basics. Tell some stories with this back to basics thing yeah. before you start crowding everything in there. That was the thing with the new 52 is that you want that, you want that clean break of continuity, but you're afraid to really do it. You don't commit to it. So, yeah, yeah, okay, we're going to cut a bunch of stuff, but not out of Batman because Batman's still making money. Right. So we're going to say that Batman has basically had like five Robins over the course of the last five years. It's more like a summer internship. He is just running through children like nothing else. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Why is that not terrifying to everybody? It's because Batman fans are of a kind. It's you know what just either commit to it completely. If you're going to reboot Batman, the first thing you have to do honestly is you have to get rid of so many fucking robins. <laughs> you got to you got to clean the house. Which traditionally DC has not had a problem doing, let's yeah. face it. But, yeah. But it's like you have all of them there and it's like, well, you know what? You if you're going to have Nightwing in this universe, you have to have Nightwing plus current Robin. That's the that's the least that's the most you can keep. Otherwise, just make Dick Grayson or another new character Robin. And or, yeah, just fully commit to it, make Dick Grayson Robin, and then have him become, or just fucking change it up and have Jason Todd become Nightwing. I don't know. Do something fucking interesting yeah. instead of the same stupid shit. They did the same thing with Green Lantern. You know how many human Green Lanterns there are right now? There are fucking six. six. <laughs> fucking six. <laughs> That's like, yeah, because you can't get rid of one because you have to keep their IP current. And you, you got to keep fans happy. And, a lot of, and the thing is, you've built up a lot of longtime fans where their affection is for these second-tier characters. And you can't – you have to decide whether you're going to make them a little angry and they're more likely to stick around if it means winning over new people. Uh, and and worst-case scenario, you get rid of an old version and then 20 years go by and some motherfucker who loved that guy as a kid suddenly brings him back, Barry Allen. Uh, yeah. I think I'm going to echo George Carlin here when, and it's his, his thing about children that I'm going to substitute fans. Everyone says, think of the fans. Fuck the fans. Yes. They get in the way of telling good well, stories. And they'll fucking Fuck the come fans. around. They will yeah. come around yeah. because yeah. if you look at it, it's like everybody bitched when Wally – like I have read – Volume three of The Flash, all right? I have read the letters column about people bitching about Wally being whiny and awful and not as good as Barry. And you know what? At the end of fucking Wally West Wally West's run, thinking people adored him. You know why? Because that's who they were telling stories about. 
Fucking Kyle Rayner was the same thing, man. You watch that, you read that run, and it's great because you get to fucking grow with the character, especially if you started reading those runs as a teenager going into adulthood, right? You got to grow up with that fucking character. Yeah, okay, well, if we make Batman permanently Dick Grayson, then all the Bruce Wayne fans won't read the comic. Yes, they fucking will because they're addicted to that shit and they have to come back to it. You need to fucking be patient enough to wait the six months or a year it's going to take to get that book off the ground. And nobody wants to do that. And you know what? The run where Dick Grayson is Batman and Damian Wayne is Robin is probably the best that Batman has been since the 1970s. Since Denny it's O'Neil. a lot of fun, but they're not willing to commit to it. Actually, this is the one thing that the, the Marvel movies has, which is that you always know when there's a legacy character in Marvel or DC, because there's always a story where so-and-so is not a hero anymore. Captain America is dead, or the Green Lantern Corps is destroyed, or anything else, and there's a new character who's taken on this, this, uh, this legacy is that you know that eventually the old status quo is going to reassert itself, even if it takes fucking forever. Wally West was the Flash mm-hmm. for like 30 years. Yep. That is the longest. I think Hal, um, Hal Jordan left being Green Lantern for like nine years, which is a pretty good run for Kyle Rayner. But here's the thing. There's a point where Robert Downey Jr. will not come back and will can't come back. And there's a point where either if you're going to continue this thing at all, you have to permanently replace him. So, yeah, then it, it might be Don Cheadle. It might be somebody else. You don't know. This is the same thing that's happening if, if Chris Evans ever gets bored. There are literally two characters that could take over for him. Well, and did Chris Evans – I remember when Chris Evans signed – well, I remember reading that when Chris Evans signed his Disney contract, he signed for 10 films, and after that, he was done. And mm-hmm. we're coming up on that. Yeah. Mm. Like, and they, there are not many left. Yeah, and there's a point where you just get tired of doing it. That there's yeah. only so much time in your career for a physically yeah. demanding job. Yeah, and as long as these films take to make, they basically have no downtime. They go from one to the next to the next. Yeah, and you can't do any other projects. You have to really fight to get in something like a Snowpiercer type movie. So yeah, I just uh, I don't know. Maybe this and is that's end. why Keanu Reeves is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> we sure. love you, Keanu. Oh, okay. We, we got to get him in a Marvel movie. <laughs> oh, The Watcher. He could be the wa- <laughs> oh, He could be, oh, be in The Watcher for real. It could be. Yeah, no, I would I would totally John Wick original the- IP about Shane Falco. No, <laughs> if Keanu Reeves is anybody in the Marvel Universe, he needs to be the Silver Surfer. Oh, <laughs> Actually, God. that would also be amazing. That would be fucking great. That would actually work. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.
shall absorb boundless strength from the cosmos itself, needing no food to eat, no water to drink, no air to breathe. You shall be able to transmute the elements and to heal others as well as yourself. Cosmic bolts of awesome power shall be yours to hurl. And neither the frigid cold of the deepest space, nor the blazing heat of the brightest star, shall harm your shielded body. Most importantly, I shall give you the means to travel faster than the fastest starship, so you may soar to the ends of the universe and beyond. Norenrad exists no more. You are newborn, my herald. Even your mind is a new page on which I shall write. Then go, my silver surfer. The spaceways beckon, and the great hunger is upon me once more.